Isn't it amazing what can happen when people have a common goal and a common purpose and they work towards something? A rocket has a point, doesn't it? It's headed somewhere. It's going somewhere. If you light those engines up and everything's working properly and it doesn't blow up, it will go very far and very fast. Spiritually speaking, God has given us a purpose. And in Philippians chapter 1, we have been studying out what that purpose is for the last several weeks. We looked at two weeks ago at how Paul remembered the church at Philippi. And he remembered them for them for some very important reasons. And he remembered them with joy. He was thankful about them. He was confident in their walk with the Lord. He loved them very much. And you know why I think the Philippians were remembered that way? Because they had a purpose and they were living their life on point. We remember the men and women who worked in the space program. Because it was exciting. They accomplished a great purpose. People that accomplish what they set out to do and go and do great things, even if they are hard things, are often remembered very well. And that's what Paul remembered about the Philippian people and the Philippian church. Last week, we looked at what Paul said that we need to have the right love. His prayer was for them that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and in judgment, that they would be able to approve or or discern between things and make the best choices with their life. If we're going to live life with purpose, just like when they were getting the rockets ready and, and training the astronauts and doing all of the things to get a man to the moon, oh, they had setbacks. They even had people die. They had all kinds of struggle to get to the moon. But they continued to push forward because they had a purpose. And they tried to use the money and the time and the knowledge that they had to the best of their abilities because they had a goal that they were trying to accomplish. The goal of reaching the moon. And you know they did it. The first ones there in 1969 and over the next several years until the early 70s, 12 different men walked on the moon. Pretty impressive. There were a number of other men who went and orbited around the moon while some of those people were walking on the moon. There were others that were involved in various stages of the project. And of course, all the people back on Earth that were involved in construction and training and controlling and building all the systems and organizing things to get the men to the moon that went to the moon. This was a giant undertaking. It was a huge purpose and a huge focus. But they accomplished it. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he moves from praying for the Philippian people to giving a personal testimony in his own life of living his life with a purpose. We're going to begin reading this morning in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. How Paul had lived his life out with purpose and how God had used that purpose and that focus to accomplish great things for him. And I hope as we read this together this morning, as we look at this together this morning, that you will be challenged in your own heart about what your purpose is. That you'll be challenged in your own life about how you're spending your time and your efforts. Maybe you need to change some things you're doing this morning. 
Maybe you just need to adjust your focus. The things you're doing aren't wrong, but you need to focus them in a slightly different direction. Or maybe your purpose in accomplishing what you accomplish needs to be adjusted. Maybe drastically, maybe slightly. But I think all of us need challenge in this to stay on the purpose that God has given us. Verse 12 of Philippians 1, Paul says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now think about that in relation to the space race. If those men had said, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to work hard on it, and they had spent time and effort and money and people died trying, and then they gave up almost there but not making it, they would feel ashamed, wouldn't they? Oh, we tried hard, but we didn't make it. Paul said, my desire in my spiritual life is that in nothing would I be ashamed. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God someday. I don't want to stand before Him and be ashamed because I didn't give Him my best. I don't want to have to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I could have done more, but I didn't. God, I should have lived my life with more purpose to accomplish what I was supposed to do. Paul says then, in verse, finishing verse 18, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of, or, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul's desire was this, that whether he lived or whether he died, that Christ would be magnified or lifted up. If we magnify something, we can make it look big, right? We take a magnifying glass and we take small things and make them look big. We use magnification to see stars that are far away and bring them close to us, right? Make them more visible, whether we're looking at the moon or the stars. We use magnification to bring out detail in things that we couldn't see on our own. 
And that is what God wants us to do with Him. That our lives should magnify Him to others. To bring Him near so that others can see Him better. To make Him big so that others can understand who He is and see Him in our own lives. To bring out the details that others might not see on their own. Because they're living their life and their focus is blurry. And their eyes are not clearly focused on God and so they can't see it. Paul says, my desire is that my life... My purpose, my point of my life would be to magnify Christ in everything that I do. I want you to notice a couple things in these verses that we just read. First of all, when I live my life with the right purpose, even bad things are used for good. Where do we see this? Well... Go back to verse 12. Paul says, I want you to understand that the things that happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that's a good thing, right? The gospel going forth. But Paul says the things that happened to me, what happened to him? We'll read in the next verse. You can see so that my bonds. So Paul was in prison when he's writing this. He's in chains. And he says, my bonds in Christ have are manifest or made known in all the palace and in all other places. So Paul said, because I'm in chains, God's gospel has actually gone out more than if I wasn't. It's gone to places that it would have never gone, except for the fact that I'm here in chains. Because Paul was in that place and locked up in those chains, the gospel was able to go forth to people that would not have heard it otherwise. When bad things happen in my life, if I'm living my life with the right purpose, they are ultimately used for good. The gospel goes forth. But also something else good happens. Other people are encouraged. Other people are encouraged. Notice he says in verse number four of. Uh, 13, I'm sorry, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So because of what had happened to Paul, and because Paul stood faithfully for the Lord, even in a difficult time, other people were encouraged to do right. I love to be around people that encourage me. I'm sure you do too, right? People that help you, not discourage you and pull you back. People that encourage me are people that have done things that I'm doing and have done them well. It encourages me when I'm around them because they give me perspective on what's possible if I'll continue doing what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what you do, whether it's being a dad, right? And you're encouraged by being around other dads who have done a good job being dads because they help you and encourage you in that way. Whether it's in your job, whatever your particular field of uh, or career field is, if you're around other people who have been successful in that and you really enjoy doing what you're doing, you get encouraged by being around those people because you learn things from them. They give you good example. They give you help. They give you good advice. Those are encouraging people to be around. Paul says, I've stayed stood for the Lord, even in difficult times, even when things were bad, even though I've been in bondage. And because of that, other people are more confident to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. I feel like I've 
kind of had this both directions this week. I've been encouraged by some other people who have... We had a pastor come here Tuesday from our church that just took us on last Sunday to help us financially. And they're giving us and have given us several things and continue to help us with things. They're giving us a new sound system. That's really nice. They're giving us this piano that's coming tomorrow. Another guy in the church came and helped paint this week. They're helping with various things. And, you know, it was encouraging as he walked through this building, he said, he's in his 70s. He said, did you know I started my first church under a brush arbor? Do you know what a brush arbor is? That's like some sticks, some posts set up with some tied up bunches of sticks and brush laid on top to just shade you from the sun. Doesn't keep the rain off. Bugs like to live in that kind of stuff. Imagine having church in that. We say, oh yeah, we sweep up some roaches on Sunday. But we have air conditioning. And he wasn't in a cool place. He started under a brush arbor and he walks around and he goes, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. You have so much here to use for the glory of God. He got all excited and he said, I need to send your information out to some other churches that I know because they need to be helping this too. This needs to happen. There needs to be a good church here that reaches into this community. And I told him about all of you and told him what our numbers were right now and where we're at. And he said, that's great. He said, you have a great start. You know what? I came away from that encouraged. Because he's been there and he's done it. And now he's saying, you can do it too. You stay faithful in that. But you know, I'm thankful the Lord even gave me an opportunity to encourage some other people this week. I had a good friend of mine who I haven't seen in a long time, probably close to 10 years. And we see each other's posts on Facebook, but we really haven't even communicated directly at all in 10 years. And I happened to see on his Facebook wall this week that he was coming through Houston on a trip and he had a layover. His flight had been canceled and he had some things happen. And so he was going to be stuck in the Houston airport for five or six hours because of the flight that he had been on. He missed a connect. It was just a mess. And so he was going to be sitting here for five or six hours and he was kind of bemoaning that fact on Facebook. And so I just wrote him a quick note and I said, hey, it'd be great to catch up. It's been a long time. He wrote me back, said, yeah, that'd be great. So I drove up there and met him this week on Thursday. I drove up to the airport. I picked him up. I took him over to Spring Creek Barbecue and we had lunch and we had a great visit. And, you know, he shared with some things in the last 10 years. Their family has struggled. They've been through some difficult times. He's worked in two different churches that didn't work out very well and was treated poorly by some people. And I was sharing with him what the Lord had done in our lives over the last few years and what we're doing now with starting this new church. And, uh, We didn't drive all the way down here and back because there just wasn't going to be time because I didn't get up there right when he landed or anything like that. It was just kind of in the middle of it. And so we had about an hour and a half to spend together. But we just had a great visit. And, you know, when he left and I dropped him off back at the airport, it was it was it felt good because he said, you know what? Well, I was pretty upset that I was going to be stuck and I felt like my trip was all messed up. But he said, I think God had that for a reason. I was supposed to be stuck in Houston today because I needed to visit with you. He said, I'm encouraged. I'm challenged to trust the Lord and to serve God faithfully with my life. And, you know, I drove away from the airport feeling encouraged myself that he was encouraged. 
You see, when we serve God faithfully, when we live our life with the purpose and point that we're supposed to live, even when bad things might happen or things aren't all working out exactly how we want, God is still completing His purpose. Not only does the gospel go out and people hear the truth, but other people are encouraged and emboldened to share the truth of the gospel. And it's a wonderful thing. We had a man here painting this week, two different days, and he's planning to come back again and help with a few more things. He donated his time. This is a man who's been in the hospital over the last few months. Actually, back around Christmas time, was close to death in the hospital. And uh, he's a guy that grew up in church. His dad was a preacher, but he left it all and was very bitter and hated God for many years because he felt like, that all his dad cared about was the church and didn't care about him and all that. And so he ran from God and lived his own life. And God finally brought him to a place where God said, you know what, you can make excuses about your dad or you can serve me. And he gave his life to the Lord. And even though he'd been in church off and on for most of his life, he actually trusted Christ as his Savior. I don't know how old he is, somewhere in his 50s. And he heard us as we sang and preached up at his church last Sunday night. He was so encouraged. He wanted to come help us here. What a blessing. You see, even when we go through difficulties, as we continue to live our life with purpose, God uses that for the gospel to go forth, for other people to be encouraged. And I want you to notice that even our enemies can't make a difference in the outcome of what God is doing. Even when people are fighting against us, even when someone's trying to keep you from doing what you're supposed to do, sometimes, humanly speaking, it feels frustrating and it feels like we're never going to make any headway, and yet God's purpose is still accomplished. Notice what Paul says here in verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. There were some people that were preaching the gospel because they thought, well, that'll make it harder on Paul. More gospel being preached, and so they'll be angry against against Paul because he's the one that started it all, and so they'll use that to keep him in prison longer or to punish him. And he says, but the other preach of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. He says, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. And will rejoice. Paul says then in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation, my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul says, you can kill me, and Christ is going to be magnified. Or I can live my life, and Christ is going to be magnified. You see, that's living a life with ultimate purpose. And that's a wonderful purpose, because it doesn't matter what you do to me. The Word of God still goes out and God is still magnified. Isn't that incredible? You see, there's a lot of ways to remove you from your purpose, right? Let's say I have a job and I'm a ski instructor, right? And my job is to teach people how to ski. But let's say I break my leg. Am I going to be a very good ski instructor with a broken leg? No. And yet what he's saying here in this passage, if as a Christian, I'm living my life For God and His purpose, it doesn't matter what happens to me. 
I could break my leg. I could lose my job. I could get sick. I could get promoted. I could make lots and lots of money. I could have a great... It doesn't matter, good or bad. If I live my life with the right purpose, it's a success. And it goes on for the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you're a a trash collector, right? Or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a real estate agent or a truck driver. If you're living your life with God's purpose as your purpose and you're living for him, no matter what happens, God is still lifted up and glorified and you still accomplish what you set out to do. And let me tell you, there is nothing I don't think more satisfying than accomplishing what you set out to do. As we heard very often growing up in our house, the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, right? But that's not just mom's words. That's God's word. It's true. When we accomplish what we set out to do, it is wonderful and encouraging and helpful in our life. So we need to live our life with the right purpose. To magnify Christ in everything that I say and that I do, my thoughts, my actions, my words, my deeds, that they all would bring glory to the Lord. Paul sums this idea up in verse 21 when he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, we saw first of all that when I live life with the right purpose, even bad things are used for good. And this idea is somewhat parallel to this, but it really continues on in the next few verses. That when I live life with the right purpose, living and dying both have benefits. Right? He says, for to me to live is Christ. That's a benefit. I'm living and it's Christ and and God's word is going forth. Or when I die, that's gain because I get to spend eternity with Christ. When someone has that kind of outlook on life, it's hard to get them down. It true, they can truly say, it's all good, because it really is. You say, I'm going to throw you in prison, Paul. Well, I'll praise the Lord over here, because God's Word is going forth. Say, Paul, we're going to let you out so you can preach. Praise the Lord, because God's Word is going forth. Paul, we're going to stone you to death. And you know what? They tried. And God's Word went forth. Paul, we're going to throw you on a prison ship and we're going to ship you to Rome and you're going to be shipwrecked and thrown up on this island with these kind of backwards people and you're going to be stuck out there, stranded on this island. Paul says, that's okay because God's word still goes forth. The glory of God is still lifted up. Isn't that wonderful? Think about how easy it is for us in our lives with when we're living for our little selfish purposes, how easy it is for for us to get thrown off track. It doesn't take much at all. A sickness, a family member treating us wrong, somebody saying the wrong thing to us, us having a car wreck. I mean, lots of things can change. You know, we could be on our way home today and all of a sudden our life would be completely flipped upside down because of an accident or a phone call and some horrible news. And yet what Paul is really saying here Above all of that, if my overarching purpose is to magnify Christ in everything that I do and serve Him with my life, that there's literally nothing that can take away from that if I keep my eyes and my focus on 
the Lord. He said, when I live for Christ, he tells us in the next few verses, I have the ability to make a difference in the lives of other people. Notice what he says in verse 22. But if I live in the flesh, he's not talking about sinful flesh. He's just talking about in this body. He says, if I live in this body, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. He says, I'm not sure which I want to choose. If I'm living here right now, it's good because people are being encouraged and people are going on and preaching the gospel because of my testimony here in my bonds, in chains, in prison. And Paul says, I'm not sure if I want to get out of prison and have life or maybe I should just stay here in prison and they'll end up killing me. He said, I'm not sure which one I want to choose. And you say, Paul, that's a no-brainer, right? Get out of jail, right, bud? What's your problem? But Paul says, it's good both ways. That's a crazy statement to make if you think about it. But it's not crazy when you have this purpose of magnifying Christ. Paul says, I'm not sure what I want to do. He says in verse 23, I'm in a straight betwixt two. In other words, I'm stuck between two decisions and both of them seem good. And I'm not sure which way to go. Have you ever had that? You've had two really good decisions. You say, I don't know which one to do. Paul talks about that a few verses previous to that when he says he wants us to approve the things that are excellent, right? He wants us to make the best choice. And Paul says, I feel like I have two really great choices. Do I want to live and, and continue to serve here? Or do I just, am I ready to go to heaven? Both seem good. Notice he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. It'd be better for me, Paul says, me personally, for my own comfort, my own well-being, for my own peace of mind. It would be a lot less stressful. It would be a lot nicer if I was just in heaven. Life would be good, wouldn't it? I'd be walking on streets of gold. I'd be living in my mansion. I wouldn't even have to clean, right? Because nothing's even going to get dirty, maybe. I'm going to praise Jesus. I'm going to have everything that I want to eat. Everything's going to be taken care of me. And life is going to be good. But Paul says, that seems better for me. But he says in verse 24, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul says, I'm willing to give up what's more comfortable for me going to heaven dying and we would say dying nobody wants to die paul says it would actually be more comfortable than this life that shows you how out on the edge of sacrifice for the lord and trusting god with everything that he was to say it would be better for me to die right now in other words we understand humanly speaking paul was not in a nice situation because i think most of us if we're honest probably wouldn't say you know what i think it'd be better for me to die right now and go to heaven because we actually kind of like this life and we like things about it maybe as a christian we try to say you know i know it'd be good and it'd be great and so when i get to that point i'm excited about it and i'm ready to go when god takes me but i don't think most of us could honestly say all right god i'm ready just go ahead and take me home and that's where paul was that's how difficult the life he was living in this physical life i think was and that also is a testament to how close his relationship with god was that he was ready to go But he said, you need me here. He said, you need me here to encourage you and to help you. He says in verse 25, and having this confidence, the second time he's used this word about confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for for all, for sorry, with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul says, God, I think, is going to let me out of prison so that I can come back and see you again because that will encourage you in the Lord. And he said, I think it's more important that you be encouraged in the Lord than me to have 
the comfort and the joy of being in heaven right now. Because I know I'll get there. Paul knew he was going to go to heaven. He knew he was on the way there. But he says, I can serve God right now. You see, living and dying both had benefits for Paul. When I live for Christ, I have the ability to make a difference in the lives of other people. When I die serving Christ, I get to spend an eternity with my Lord and Savior. They both have benefits. The true meaning of this life, which includes life and death, is wrapped up in one thing, and that is living for Christ and magnifying Him in everything that I do. Paul gives us a little more insight into what living for Christ really looks like. And that's the last few verses of this chapter. And we're going to spend just a few more minutes here before we're done. Living for Christ should change everything about what we do and how we live. He says in verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So he's explaining to us how to magnify Christ in everything I do. He says, let your conversation, this is what I say, right? This is what I do. This is my lifestyle. It's how I live. Everything I do, the choices I make, what I wear, what I listen to, what I put into my body, what I allow to come out of my mouth, what I put through my eyes, what I look at, what I listen to, the way I treat other people, everything about me, my lifestyle, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, where I, who my friends are, everything about me. That's my lifestyle. That's what this conversation is that he's talking about. He says, my conversation, my lifestyle should be as becometh the gospel of Christ. That's not a word we use often today. To become. But what it really means is to make something look good. Sometimes you may have heard this phrase. Maybe if you watch an old movie or read an old book, you hear somebody say, oh, that dress is very becoming. And that means, oh, that's a beautiful dress, right? Oh, her hair is very becoming. Usually hear it referred to ladies, right? In the way that they dress. Maybe you hear in other things, but what it means is it makes you look good. And Jesus says through the Apostle Paul here in Philippians, he says, your lifestyle should be something that adorns or makes the gospel look good to other people. People should look at you and look at the way you live and say, I want to have that. I saw a commercial the other day, uh, and I think it was for eBay, and they're trying to sell clothing and purses and shoes and things online, eBay fashion or something. And they had this commercial of this lady walking through, and, and she had some article of clothing on, but she also had this really nice dress on, and this other lady saw it, and so she got on her phone and ordered the dress, and then she was walking through, and the, this other lady noticed her shoes, and, and so the other lady bought the shoes, and then the lady has the nice shoes on that she just bought, and she walks in, and she's got this really cool purse, and she sets it down, the other lady sees that, and she says, oh, I want that purse, it looks good, and so she gets on eBay and orders the purse, and it's showing that you can order all kinds of fun fashion items on eBay, great. But you know what attracted those people to those things? They said, wow, that purse looks good. Those shoes look great. That dress looks good. I would look good in that. People want to look good, right? They want to feel put together. They want to look sharp. They want to have the nice things and the nice clothes and the nice accessories. And here he says, in in my life, the way I live it, my lifestyle should make the gospel look good for other people. The people say, I want what he has. 
I want what she has. Now, sometimes the gospel, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? People say, oh, but if I follow God, then I'm going to have to give up this or that. And that's how people often think of it. And yet, as Paul's explaining here, the benefits of following God far outweigh anything that we give up. In fact, as we draw closer to Christ, the things we give up seem so insignificant for all the things that we gain. When we're living over here in our own life, and our own selfishness, with my own things that I have, that I got, that I deserve, and my life's focused on me, 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 those things feel really big, and it feels, oh, so painful to get rid of them. But when I leave those things behind one by one, and I realize that's a process, it's a difficult thing, it's a daily decision. Paul talked about having to die daily to himself, and Jesus said to take up your cross and follow Him. Those are challenging things, but the more we walk with Him, the more we follow Him, the more we give up those things and put on the things of Christ. Oh, those things are far more satisfying. Those things bring far more joy and peace to us because we can and should, in everything we do in our lifestyle, make the gospel look good. He says... At the next part of verse 27, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul said, your life should make the gospel look so good that whether I come and see you or just hear about you from other people, that everybody will know. It's an example to all through your lifestyle, through your way of living that you are standing fast, that you are serving God, that people know that God is at work. When when people see God at work, people are encouraged. I had a lady this past week write me on Facebook. She said, what's your address? We want to send some money to help out with the church. You know why she said that? Because she was encouraged because I was sharing all the things that God had provided this week. Isn't that interesting? It's almost funny if you step back and think about it. People want to give more to something where people are already giving. Isn't that interesting? And you say, but maybe they have nothing. They need it more. And yet, where people see God working, that's where they want to get behind and get involved. Have you ever thought about that? That's why it's hard to start something new from scratch, right? Because people are already doing stuff other places. And so to say, hey, stop doing that there and now start doing here, that's hard to do. But when people begin to see God at work and people see God happening, things can grow and change. This happens even in the secular world. People want to invest in businesses that are successful, right? They don't want to invest in businesses always. It's a lot more risky to invest in a business that hasn't started yet, right? When I was in sales, you know who the boss would give all the extra side deals to that were just easy, go in and sign a piece of paper and get paid on? He didn't give those to the new reps to help them out. No, he gave those to the people that have been there a long time. You say, I remember all the new reps. They complain, that's not fair. The rich get richer. (laughs) And we're just over here scraping, trying to work along. But you know why the bosses would do that? Because they're trying to reward the effort of those people. They know that those people are the big producers that bring in the money for the office. And so they're going to keep rewarding them and helping them because they want to keep them. In truth, they actually don't care about the new guy quite as much because they don't know whether or not he or she is going to produce yet. 
But this is a proven entity. They know it's producing. They know this person can get it done, and so they're going to keep helping them make more money because they know that's what keeps those salespeople motivated. Right, Alan? (laughs) If you don't pay them, they go find somebody else who will if they know how to produce. And it was kind of fun for me as I worked in that sales process because at first I was like, oh, I'm scraping along, and it felt like it was easy for them because they had it, but I learned they got there for a reason because they worked hard, and they deserve it. And actually, I made it to that point. And my boss would say, hey, Will, I got something for you. I just need you to go out and get this paperwork signed and bring it back. Great, sure. Go get it done bring it back. You know, $5,000 payday for making a trip across town. That's a good day. Right? But those didn't happen when I first got hired. Those happened after proving myself. Right? Because people said, oh, that guy's going somewhere. He's doing something, and we want to get behind that. And you know, in our spiritual life, as we start serving God and as we walk with God and as God uh, works through us and other people are encouraged and challenged, it's wonderful to see how this can even happen in a church. It happens in a body of believers. As people get encouraged, they get excited. And they say, I want to get behind that. I want to help that. I want to serve that. I want to be a part of what God is doing there. Because as we stand for the Lord, as we are faithful to work hard, even when it's hot outside, or even when we don't feel like it, or even when we say, well, we have some things that aren't as nice as they have, or, or may, whatever it is, when we're faithful, God blesses. And when we serve God, God takes care of things. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have you know, this massive place or you know, thousands of people. That's not what success is. Paul's already said it. For me, whether I live or die, it's so that I magnify Christ. That's what success is. Success isn't about me feeling like I did something special. Success is we magnified Christ. And Christ was magnified in and through me. You understand that focus? Paul says, if I'm going to do this, then my lifestyle, everything I do, needs to point people towards Christ. He says in verse 28, "...and in nothing terrified by your adversaries." In other words, when I'm walking with Christ, I can stand strong even in the face of enemies. He says, I'm not terrified by my adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. Oh, when they can't make you afraid, when people who want to take you away from the Lord can't do it, you know what that does to them? It convicts them of their own sin. That's what he says here, the evident token of perdition. In other words, it reminds them of their judgment that's coming. Because they realize that what you have is real. And so that's why they try so hard to pull you away from following Christ. Because if they can get you to turn away, then that proves that it wasn't really real in your life, perhaps. Just like I, I, I remember hearing a story from my parents of a teacher in their college who, when somebody would get engaged, he would still try to set them up with, on dates with other people. Is that a true story? I think I remember that. Yeah. He just said it's not over. He it's not over till it's over, right? Why? Because if you're engaged and you're still willing to go on a date with somebody else, then what you have probably isn't real, right? <laughs> so you better not be engaged because you're wasting your time. But spiritually speaking, right? I can say I'm following Christ. And, well, I go to this church and I do this. And if you go around and visit, you'll meet lots of people that go to church, supposedly, or remember, or they're Christian, supposedly. And yet, if you look at their lifestyle, it has nothing that says anything about Christ. It's not about magnifying Christ for them. It's about themselves. 
In fact, many people may say they're a member of a church. They might have gone three weeks ago on Easter Sunday or four weeks ago on Easter Sunday, but today they're sitting at home. Well, I was up late watching the fight last night, and so, you know, I'm just tired. Why? Because that was more important to them than Christ. You see, Paul says, I can stand strong for the Lord. My lifestyle should point other people to Christ. I'm not terrified by my adversaries. I'm not going to let anybody pull me away from following after God because it's real in my life and God has changed me and so I'm going to live for Him. Notice he says in verses 29 and 30, he's given us two privileges. We're going to like the first one and maybe not so much the second one. The two privileges that he says we have as followers of Christ is this, for unto you is given in the behalf of Christ Not only to believe on Him, that's the first one, to trust in Christ. But he says, but also to suffer for His sake. He says, if you follow Christ, you can trust Him. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to help you all the way. But you're also going to face some suffering along the way. Paul says in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me. Paul says, you saw the conflict that I had, the struggle that I've had, the people that have been against me, the enemies that have tried to put me down. He says, now you hear about it. When did they see it in Philippi? You remember? Paul's first visit there, he was thrown in jail. And Paul and Silas sang that night in the prison, and the Bible tells us that there was a great shaking earthquake of the ground. All the doors of the prison were thrown open, and the jailer came running in, ready to take his own life, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And Paul and Silas said, wait, stop, we're all here. And the man looked at him, he said, what must I do to be saved? They had seen Paul in bondage. And now, as Paul's writing this letter to them, he's once again in prison, just in a different place. Paul spent a lot of time in jail. And he says, now you hear about it. And he said, if you follow God, you can trust Him. He's going to provide. But you may suffer too along the way. But that's okay. Because remember, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So President JFK gave this great speech. He said, we're going to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard, right? Everybody, whoo, they cheer. So over the course of the next decade, or as he said, decade. I don't know why he pronounced decade that way, but that's how JFK pronounced it in that particular speech. Yeah. So over the course of the next decade, they went to the moon several times. Wonderful achievement. Nothing better than walking on the moon. There's a comedian that talks about this. He, said, he talks about how people in their conversations like to one-up each other, right? Like if you're telling me a story about something you've done, I said, well, I've, I've done this, you know. And he said, I just wish I was an astronaut. So that when people <laughs> came to me and they were telling me about this big fish that they caught or this big awesome trip they went on or this big house they owned, be like, Well, I walked on the moon. And he said that would kind of end all those conversations, right? Well, a few months ago, my dad, my brothers, and I had the privilege of attending a men's conference and meeting a guy that actually did walk on the moon. His name's Charlie Duke. Now, I did a little research on Charlie this week. I don't know if Dad or Alan, if you know these things about Charlie, but this was fascinating to me. 
He's obviously no slouch, right? He walked on the moon. He graduated valedictorian of his high school class, went off, graduated with honors from the Naval Academy. Oh, by the way, he also has a degree from MIT. You wouldn't expect this, meeting a guy with a, just a kind of a quiet southern drawl who lives in New Braunfels, Texas. He has led all kinds of organizations, started a bunch of businesses in his life. He's done all kinds of things. In fact, he was the youngest man to ever walk on the moon. He was 36 years old in 201 days. So just a little bit shy of his 37th birthday, but the youngest man to ever walk on the moon. But I learned something else about Charlie Duke when I was reading about him this week. There's a lot you can read about him online. Did you know Charlie Duke is the he was the Capcom or he was the capsule communicator for the Apollo 11 uh, mission? So the guy talking on the radio to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin saying tranquility 60 seconds to land, that's Charlie Duke. The guy who said, this is a great line. Right after they landed and they said, Tranquility Base, we've land, you know, we're here. He said, and then there was this pause, and Charlie Duke says, You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue down here. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That was Charlie Duke. At that time, he was even younger. He was like 33, so he's my age. And he's the guy chosen to communicate with them. Pretty fascinating. He went on the Apollo 16, which is the second to last mission to go to the moon. The last one that went to the moon was Apollo 17. And in 1972, he got to walk on the moon. And in fact, at that time, he and John Young, who was the other astronaut with him, set a record for the longest time of anybody spending on the moon. They were there for 72 hours. That's a long time. That's three plus days. Isn't that incredible? They took the longest trip that had ever been taken in a lunar rover. They landed in a place on the moon that hadn't been landed on before, and it was a very very rough terrain and difficult stuff. They, they set a record for the largest payload ever deployed in lunar orbit. They gathered like 300 pounds of samples onto the module to bring back with them. They worked hard in those 72 hours. And this is all in very low gravity and all the other things that they have to deal with in the oxygen and stuff. They did all kinds of stuff. And when we met Charlie Duke, he was telling us about some of these things. But, you know, we would talk to him about the moon or whatever his trip to the moon, and he, his line is, well, talking about the moon is great, but let's talk about the one who made the moon. I was reading about Charlie, and I came about part of his testimonies on his website. After he came back from the Apollo 16 mission, he was confronted by somebody with this question, who is Jesus Christ? And Charlie Duke says, my response to this question led me to a new life in Christ and a new walk with him. He said, in 1972, I rode Apollo 16 off on a fantastic adventure. I used to say I could live 10,000 years and never have an experience like walking on the moon. But he said this, the excitement and satisfaction of that walk doesn't compare with my walk with Jesus. A walk that lasts forever. Going to the moon, that'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? He's in the history books. 
Not just for his trip to the moon, but also for the guy communicating with the first guys that ever went to the moon. Because he was in the space program at that point. Paul said it this way as a believer, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Charlie Duke and all those other astronauts, boy, they fired the imagination of many boys and girls and adults all across this country and all across the world. They inspired them to go after and do great things in in the areas of technology and science. The computer age that we're in was really ushered in because of the space age and all the technological advancements that happened during that time. We benefit from all kinds of space age technology to this day because of the work that those guys did. It all went back to a speech given by JFK saying, we are going to go to the moon. They set out with this great purpose and the entire world was changed for it. And yet Charlie Duke said, I could live 10,000 years. Nothing could be better than that. But he said, wait, now I know walking with Jesus Christ is better than that. Living for Christ is what it's all about. Isn't that pretty neat? And we have an opportunity to do something that... Charlie Duke, I'm not Charlie, but he said it. He's the guy that walked on the moon. He said walking with Jesus is much better.